When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Based on a 1902 novel of the same name, this 80s flick brought together two of the 80s greatest funny men and an established director who wasn't prone to making comedies. Despite primarily negative reviews, it still did well at the box office and was a mainstay on cable television over the years, making it beloved by those who were watching basic cable channels in the late 80s and early 90s. So break out the calculators, get ready to spend some cash, and watch out for the oncoming train in the back of the baseball field as Nicholas Pepin, Chad Shepard, and I discuss Brewster's Millions from 1985 on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Monty Brewster has a problem. You have 30 days in which to spend 30 million bucks. If you can do it, you get 300 million. But if you fail, don't get it. How would you like to be my personal driver for the next 30 days at $5,000 a week? What a country. America, I love it. To use it? I just bought an iceberg. Or lose it. We're going to have a lot of fun with this kind of money. <laughs> Brewster's Million. Rated PG. Hello, movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams, the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. On each episode, I'm joined by an 80s Flick-loving guest co-host to talk about one of the great and sometimes not-so-great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser-known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now-defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter which 80s flick we choose for each episode, we have a lot of fun sharing first-time watch memories, discussing our favorite iconic scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe and follow 80s Flick Flashback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And while you're there, leave us a stellar written review and a five-star rating. You can also support the show by following us on our social media pages. Just search for 80s Flick Flashback on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And don't forget to check out our website, 80sflickflashback.com as well. If you want to take your support to the next level, you can become a financial partner for less than $10 a month. The link to financially support the podcast is located in our episode show notes. And while you're there, be sure to check out more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into today's episode. Thanks for listening. Now, on with the show. Welcome in, everybody. So glad to have you here for the uh, this episode of the 80s Quick Flashback Podcast. As we always say, we've got a good one for you today, and this is a... Uh, a favorite of the three of us on this episode. So let's, uh, without further ado, let's introduce my co-host for this episode from Pop Culture Roulette. You know him, you love him. It's Mr. Nicholas Pepin. How you doing, Nicholas? Pretty good. Got a couple bucks to spend, and I'm looking to 
could maybe play some bets. So, <laughs> and then we've got Mr. Chad Shepard, who is another frequent uh, co-host as well. How you doing, Chad? I'm doing well, Tim. Thank you. Yes, sir. All right, so we're talking about Brewster's Millions, Richard Pryor, John Candy. Mm-hmm. Let's jump right in, fellas. When did you guys see this one for the first time? Uh, Nicholas, I'll let you go first. I honestly, I can't remember. I, I always know that you're going to do this segment. Like, always. <laughs> um, my guess is because my 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 dad would have probably watched it first with Richard Pryor being in it to make sure. Make sure, okay. yeah. Because <laughs> I know that I know where they were big John Candy fans. So I have to assume that. We probably rented it, so probably sometime mm-hmm. in you know eighty six, eighty seven, and then you know, it, you know the guy, the friend who had all of the movies on the VHS tape, mm-hmm. yeah, you know the one that we all had back in the eighties and nineties. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I'm I'm sure they had Brewster's Millions, and you know, I've I you know I've seen this movie a, a bunch. I mean, mm-hmm. it's been a long time since I watched it. So right. like, there were parts of it that I had forgotten, but I mean, it was like, it was, as soon as I started watching it, I'm like, oh yeah, oh no, it's all it's <laughs> coming all back coming to you. Back. Yeah, it's all coming back. <laughs> what about you, Chad? I'm exactly the same, same position. Uh, it was the guy who had, who had HBO and recorded all the, the movies on HBO and we would, I would borrow them and watch them. <laughs> and I, if, if, if I didn't, if I wasn't borrowing back to the future, I was borrowing Bruce's million. Was, was, I, I thought I love that movie. And, yeah, <laughs> and watching and rewatching re- it for the podcast, I'm like, I remember loving this movie so much. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. like it, it is the movie that told me about how to spend money. <laughs> like we, like so. we need anybody to teach us that, right? Right. Right. Uh, yeah, for me, I did not see this in the theater. Uh, I'm. I was trying to remember. Did I see this on a cable? Or was this a rental? And I really think it was one we rented because my parents, like Nicholas, my parents were big Richard Pryor fans and um, John Candy fans. I had already seen The Toy, which was an earlier Richard Pryor PG movie. And so that we had seen that one a couple of times. So I'm pretty sure we probably watched this one as a family the first time. And then I want to say that I had a copy, like I had recorded it, but I don't think, I think I had the TV version that I had recorded when it came on TV, like a couple of years later that I know I probably watched multiple times. So yeah, so it was fun to go back and, and rewatch it. So when, how long had it been since you rewatched it for the podcast? I had not seen it. It's been many years. I keep, I keep seeing the, you know, that famous uh, cover box with him surrounded by the money. And, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, bust, busting out of it. And, mm-hmm. You know, but no, I had not seen it in some time. What about you, Nicholas? It's been a long time. It's it's it seems to be one of those movies that, like you said, used to be a mainstay, and mm-hmm. then at some point, at some point, it just kind of went away. Yeah. And then I know I I brought it up recently when I did a uh, an episode focused on baseball. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Like I talked about yeah. it, but uh, like then I so I was like a couple weeks ago, a month or so ago, when we did that episode, I was like, I should really hunt that down and rewatch it. And <laughs> then when you hit me up, I'm like. Finally got a reason to rewatch. All right, <laughs> glad I could help. Uh, yeah, speaking of baseball, I, you know, w- watching it again, I was like, I thought about this movie for this time of year because I typically do like a baseball movie, you know, in in May, and I remember there being baseball in the movie, 
but I did, I forgot that it actually starts like the beginning of the movie starts on the baseball field. And I was like, this is perfect. It's like the, the forgotten baseball movie of the eighties. I mean, baseball is not the main part of the movie, but you still like, he is a relief pitcher for a minor league team. You do have, there's a, a good section of the movie about the game and then playing the Yankees. So I, I thought that was cool, but um, yeah, it's been a while since I've seen it. My wife, said that she was like i thought we watched this like a like she was like a, like a year ago and i was like nah we may have seen it like since we've been married which would be in the last 20 years but it, it's been it's been a good while since i've watched it uh and i don't know if it was like on if it was on one of the cable channels it's like oh i haven't seen this in a long time and we watched it or you know that off chance that it was on like one of the basic cable channels with commercials and we we watched it then but um but yeah, it was one that I I I found really cheap, like on on Blu-ray, not too long ago. So I was like, I gotta gotta have this in my collection because I've watched it so many times as a kid. I know we're gonna cover it on the podcast, so it was fun to pop it in. I was a little disappointed that it has no special features, uh, not even the trailer. Like it just has the movie. That's all there is on the Blu-ray. So well, now I know why it was so cheap. So all right, we're gonna jump into story origin and pre-production. Sure. All right. All right. Here we go. George Barr McCrutchen's novel, Brewster's Millions, was adapted for the screen in the United States in 1914, 1921, 1935, and 1945. So this is really a remake of a remake of a remake of a remake. Uh, there was also a 1926 version called Miss Brewster's Millions. So, they, of course, they did a little gender swap, gender swap on that one. In England, it was remade as Three on a Spree in 1961. In the earlier incarnations of Brewster's Millions, the character was required to only spend $1 million, not $30 million, which I figured that much with it being such an old novel. But this movie was first uh, greenlit by Frank Price after he became head of production at Universal. Uh, they chose director Walter Hill, who had attended to make his version of Dick Tracy, but left that project and was and was now available. He had never made a comedy before, but it had made the successful 48 Hours, which featured comic scenes and the comic lead, of course, Eddie Murphy. The script was written by the same writers as Trading Places. Uh, Hill said in an interview, I'm always making westerns, whether it's a movie that takes place in the future or an action adventure like 48 Hours. What I'm really doing is making cowboy movies. I like westerns because everything is very clear in them. I like movies in which the storyline is simple and straightforward and the characters are confronted with issues of life and death. But Hollywood has decided that people don't like Westerns anymore, so I have to make these other movies and pretend they're not Westerns. My idea of a good movie is to take very clearly defined characters and put them in the highest possible jeopardy and then see what happens. So I think that's interesting that a Western director not known for comedy was given this movie i mean he he seemed to do a fairly decent job at it I yeah mean, oh yeah yeah i mean it would be interesting to to see what a a, a director who was more adept at comedy mm -hmm. but then again I, I do wonder how much of it was just letting richard Pryor go wild on the set yeah oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Let, letting richard richard Pryor go and letting john candy go and then just see what happens right right yeah, it's it's interesting when you like think about Forty Eight Hours. Like, I don't think of it as a as funny of a comedy as say like Trading Places or Beverly Hills Cop. It it's a, it is a little more more of an action movie than a comedy. Uh, but speaking of Richard Pryor, because uh, you know the same interview they were asked him about working Richard Pryor, 
And he said the hardest thing with Rich, working with Richard Pryor was that he didn't believe that he was funny unless he took drugs. And he believed that if he took drugs, then he would die. So he had money problems, of course. So he had to work and take jobs and make lots of money. So it was difficult for him, but he liked, but he said, I liked Richard very much. So kind of a sad thought of Richard Pryor for that reason that, and in some of the reviews, like it didn't do very well. It wasn't reviewed very well. Like the reviews for it were pretty terrible. And a lot of the people felt like, like you saying, like let Richard Pryor go. They felt like he was kind of hindered in this. Like he wasn't, he didn't have as much leeway to be as funny as he normally, like they felt like he had been kind of, uh, sanitized too much in this movie where he couldn't really be as funny uh, as he had, had been in other movies. Um, I don't know if I have that same thought, but it is interesting to think that way. And then other people kind of criticized Walter Hill because like they, one person said he, it should have been like a screwball comedy with lots of, lots of funny scenes and lots of wild antics. And they said, they don't think Walter Hill knew how to make that kind of movie. So it, it kind of, it didn't, some of the jokes didn't land the way they thought they would have, or the funny scenes didn't go long enough to really get uh, the full joke or the full comedic scenes all the way out. I mean, I see their point to an extent, but I right. mean, I, I do, I do think that what was it? This well, 85, was that before or after the PG 13 rating existed? Uh, This is right around the same, like same year. I don't okay. think this might've been like a few months earlier. But I mean, even with that, I mean, they were trying to do at least I felt like a little bit more of a family friendly film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and which is something that Richard Pryor can do. Oh, yeah. But you also have like Blazing Saddles, Richard Pryor, or, <laughs> you know, or the, I guess, you know, the writer. Of right. Saddles, right. But, you know, or or if you stay up late enough and watch Comedy Central and they show you the unedited Richard Pryor stand ups. Uh, right. Right. Yeah, there, there's, there's two very different Richard Pryors. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, just like there's two very different Robin Williams. Like you watch Robin oh, yeah. Williams stand up, it's completely different than Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Your oh, thoughts, Chad? I enjoyed his performance. Uh, mm-hmm. I, th- I think this movie was the the introduction to Richard Pryor for me mm-hmm. at that young of an age. You know, right. I was, I was. By the time I saw it in what eighty six, eighty seven, I was you know seven, eight years old, mm-hmm. and I'd not you know I'd not as famous as he was with the Gene Wilder movies. I didn't see those till I was much yeah. older. Yeah, same. My, par- my parents wouldn't let me watch watch many Richard Pryor things. But, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we did like John Candy. Yeah, Walter Hill. He this was I think his only like well. It's his only unless comedy he's ever done, yeah. Oh, that's what I was going to say. That's his only comedy. I mean, unless you count 48 Hours, but that's, yeah. that's an action movie more than the comedy. Right, right. exactly. So. so, yeah. I mean, once again, I'm not, I, I'm not dogging the movie in any way. I would just, I'm just bringing up, you know, I guess some counterpoints for, you know, we're going to talk about how much we love it. So you always want to kind of mention the people that didn't. But at the same time, like for us, we all saw it at a young age and I think it appealed to us. We weren't looking at it from a movie making standpoint or from a critic standpoint. And it still was very successful. It was, it made a lot of money and it was still considered a hit. Um, so. I still think it's enjoyable. I still, I enjoyed watching it again the other day and I'm, I'll enjoy watching it again, you know, many more times that I watch it. So. And I do, I do wonder if not really knowing Richard Pryor ahead of time. Yeah. For, for those of us that were in the younger age watching this movie, mm-hmm. you know, not, not having experienced Richard Pryor 
Like we, so we didn't go into it with preconceived notions of who he yeah. was supposed to be. Yeah. He was, you know, he was just a funny guy, you know, mm-hmm. he was, and yeah. then, and then later on when you see a stand up, you're like, Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that that's the other thing. Like, like I said, I think I had seen the toy before this one, but once again, the toy is supposed to be more like a family friendly with a kid PG movie. So, I mean, that's, those are the movies that I remember. Those are the Richard Pryor movies that I know. Like my parents knew, like my dad knew about stir crazy and blazing saddles and, you know, those, those, uh, Richard Pryor movies, like, and there's, and I'll honestly talk about, you know, Richard Pryor movies. I, there's some that I have yet, I've never seen. Like I've never watched one of his, um, stand up specials. I've seen clips, but I've never watched the entire thing. But I've tried to go back and watch some of the like I, I watched um, Stir Crazy like maybe like a year, maybe like two years ago when I watched that. Um, I've seen Blazing Saddles like as an adult. So I've seen the other aspects of Richard Pryor's comedy that I didn't know about at, at that point. And he did another movie I remember I saw on TV that might have been in the 70s, but I watched in the 80s and it was him and Cicely Tyson. And I, oh, I cannot remember the name of it. I didn't even think about looking it, looking it up in his. Is that uh, where he was a race car driver? No, it's not that one. It was one where like she was like a, I want to say it was like a group of like church kids or orphans or whatever. And he oh, was the yeah. bus driver. He was the bus driver and had to drive them um, across country or something like that. Yeah, you uh, can look loose, it up. Something loose. Yeah. Busting loose. Was that busting loose? loose? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. So I remember right, seeing, I yeah, I remember seeing that on TV. And really, really liking it, and that being more of it, he was funny, but it was a it was more of a dramatic role for him. Yeah. And I remember seeing that like after seeing these movies and thinking, oh, he can, you know, he's kind of a serious actor too. So all of the ones he did with Gene Wilder kind of, you know, hit or miss. But you yeah, know, it, you know, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, there is some. I um uh, a few. Well, I was still living in Florida at the time, so it probably would have been about ten, fifteen years ago. Mm-hmm. Um. Comedy Central used to, after a certain time, they would just uh, air basically the unedited right, uh, right. stand-up specials. And one night I was just up late and I didn't mm-hmm. feel like going to bed. And Richard Pryor came on. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I've never actually watched the stand-up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, man, I, first off, I can't believe we were that he was getting away with this back in the <laughs> 70s, early 80s. But yeah, second, yeah. I was, I mean, I don't know if I've ever laughed as hard as I had when I watched that special. Just... Mm-hmm. Just rolling. I mean, mm. just rolling. But you know, none of it appropriate for your podcast. So, <laughs> no. no, no, probably not. But yeah, there's a few like I'm going to talk about when we get in the casting that uh, some of his recordings, like some of the names of the recordings, I can't even say on this podcast and <laughs> would not be allowed to be said in public now. But that was what the name of his albums were. So in the 70s. So, but uh, anyway, look it up on your own time if you if if you dare. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, but let's jump into casting while we're there, unless you guys have something else you want to mention. Yeah, I just, I, it's funny. I was looking at the ones that he did before, mm-hmm. and like I saw this before I saw Super. Like it's funny. I, I told my wife where I was doing the podcast, and I said, "Yeah, it's a movie with Richard Pryor." She's like, "He did something besides Superman movie." <laughs> oh yeah, Superman three, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I was like, "Yes, dear. He he did lots of movies before." <laughs> Before and after Superman 3. Right, right. And now, these messages. (sighs) What seems to be the problem, pal? There's just so much pain in the world. So many issues. I don't think I can bear it. 
Hell, friendo, it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette. Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture themed podcast or something? That's right, sonny boy. When hope seems far, dive into some PCR. But I already get my entertainment news from Variety. Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, PCR gives you news you need, condensed, unfiltered, and raw, from three nerds who know a little something about something. Wow, okay, sign me up. That's the spirit. Pop Culture Roulette. New episodes every Monday, available on all major podcast directories. Comic books have been around for almost a century, and in the last two decades, we've finally gotten to see many of these characters brought to life in movies and on TV. On the Moving Panels podcast, we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and my guests as we discuss both the good and the bad from Marvel, DC, and even some of the lesser-known comic book companies. Learn what is and isn't from the comics, as well as our nerdy review of the movie or show. New episodes drop every Monday, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. Alright, well let's jump into casting. So of course we'll start with the man we've been talking about already, Richard Pryor as Montgomery Brewster. If you did not know, Pryor was an American stand-up comedian and actor, as we've talked about already. He reached a broad audience with his observations and storytelling style and is widely regarded as one of the greatest and most influential stand-up comedians of all time. He's won a Primetime Emmy Award and five Grammy Awards. His body of work includes the concert films and recordings Richard Pryor, Live and Smokin' in 1971, Is It Something I Said in 75, Richard Pryor, Live in Concert, 1979, Live on the Sunset Strip in 82, Here and Now in 83. As an actor, he mainly starred in comedies. His occasional roles in dramas included Blue Collar in 1978. He also appeared in action films like Superman 3 in 83. He collaborated on many projects with Gene Wilder, including Silver Streak in 76, Stir Crazy in 80, See No Evil, Hear No Evil in 89, and Another You in 1991. So it's a very brief uh, kind of bio for him. There's a lot, you know, you could, we could, you know, we could deep dive into Richard Pryor, but, uh, but yeah, I think I watched Silver Streak and Stir Crazy a couple of years ago because they were both available on one of the streaming services. So uh, those are fun. I did see uh, See No Evil, Hear No Evil. Me and my dad went and saw that in the theater. I remember in 89. So any other thoughts about Richard Pryor before we move on to Mr. Candy? Um, not, not that I think we haven't already talked about. So <laughs> I, I think it was interesting that he said his, the album in 71 was live and smoking. Yes. Yet the whole, when he got, you know, cut on fire and did a whole bit about him catching on fire and mm-hmm. stuff, that was late. That was mid, mid eighties. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. Well, well, yeah, that's, Yeah. I mean, we don't have to talk about it, but no, I, no, no, no. It might be live at the Sunset Strip, where he did a whole bit about him running down the down the street on fire. Yeah, it was either that one or Here yeah. and Now, but it was early '80s because yeah. I remember, I remember when they played that on HBO, they would play that commercial all the time, and that was the one yeah. joke like him holding the match, like, "Look, who's that? That's Richard Pryor." Like, I remember <laughs> that little clip uh, being yeah. played uh, a bunch of times, and not really understanding the reference. I think my dad actually had to explain it to me um, at one point. So, so next we got Mr. John Candy as his best friend Spike Nolan, also the catcher of the 
Montgomery Bulls uh, minor league baseball team. So, of course, we've talked about Candy uh, a few times before, but he was a Canadian actor and comedian who rose to fame in the 70s as a member of the Toronto branch of the Second City and its SCTV sketch comedy series. He grew to prominent prominence in the 80s with his roles in comedic films like Stripes, Splash, Little Shop of Horrors, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Spaceballs, The Great Outdoors, and Uncle Buck. He was also known for supporting roles in the Blues Brothers, National Lampoon's Vacation, and Home Alone. So he agreed to take the part once he heard that Pryor was starring as Walt- and Walter Hill was directing. When Candy came to visit Hill on the set of Streets of Fire in 1984, Hill, who was a fan of SCTV, told Candy, quote, I'd love to have you in the picture. I'm afraid the way the script stands, there isn't much for you to do, but I'll do my best to expand the part for you, which I like, which I think that's great that mm-hmm. the part of Spike was not didn't have much to do. And so to get Candy, he helped to make, you know, give it give him a little bit more life, which he's really not in the movie a whole lot. I mean, uh he has a few scenes, but he's he's not in he's not in it as much as I remembered him thinking he was in. So right. No, I'd agree, and we'll get to that in a little bit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not gonna train I'm not gonna bring the podcast down. We'll get into fun stuff again, but it kind of hit me when I was doing the bios that it's kind of oh. sad to think that Richard Pryor and John Candy are no longer with us. Like they've they both <laughs> passed away, uh, which I was yeah. like. I didn't really want to think about that, but now I do and can't stop thinking about it. But anyway, so four one out for Richard Pryor and John Candy, I guess. So but yeah, I miss them. They were they were great uh oh, yeah. great comedic forces that uh are greatly missed. So And I think I don't think they did anything together. They didn't either. They didn't. Yeah. This yeah. is the only thing they did together. Yeah, and I'll, there may be a reason, and I'll we'll cover that when I get the trivia. I won't mention that just yet. So. Oh. <laughs> All right, so next on the cast list, we'll talk about Lynette McKee, who played Angela Drake. The uh, uh, She was the paralegal, or she was the the junior accountant, I think it was. Something like I, that. Junior accountant, yeah. yeah. They kept calling. I think they called her a paralegal, but she was also a junior account. I'm not sure the script really knew what it yeah, was doing. Those are two her. very different things. <laughs> right. Uh, so anyway, so her career began in the music industry in Detroit as a child prodigy, where she began playing keyboards, composing music and lyrics, singing and performing professionally at a young age. At 14, she recorded her first record, Don't Stop. No, sorry. Stop, Don't Worry About It, which became an instant uh, regional pop and R&B hit. She made her film debut playing Sista in Sparkle in 1976, following were starring roles in Which Way Is Up in 1977, which was also with Richard Pryor. She was also in The Cotton Club in 84, Gardens of Stone in 87, for renowned, renowned, sorry, for renowned director Francis Ford Coppola. Other films included Men of Honor in 2000, as well as uh, Jungle Fever in 91 and Malcolm X in 92 with her mentor, Spike Lee. Uh hmm. So Jennifer Beals was actually up for the role of Angela Drake before she was cast. Of course, Jennifer Beals was coming off the success of Flashdance. Uh, and Alfrey Woodard was also considered for the role. But um, I was actually surprised because I I even going back and seeing her name and seeing her character, like I don't think I would remember her from anything else that she's ever done. Uh not that she was bad in, in the role, just she's not a name that I really knew that much about. So yeah, I clicked on her uh, IMDb page and 
she's the first thing she's known by is this movie. Yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> this is probably okay. like yeah. I think this was probably like her bigger biggest role that she had. I think she yeah. had like more minor uh, side characters than the other stuff. I mean, I, I recognize a lot of the things that you just named, but you know, <laughs> like yeah, you know, I, I don't necessarily remember her in any of it. So. Yeah, I'd have to go like through the pictures in her IMDb page and kind of see what she looked like in those other movies and what scene she was in to really remember. But with her hairstyle, she had two different hairstyles and looked like two completely different people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Like when she had the the tight the tight up when mm-hmm. she first met her, and then later when she's more relaxed, she has it down and. Mm-hmm. Like looked like it, I, I knew it was the same person, but it's kind of she yeah, seemed different. Changes her look for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so we're gonna hit. Uh, as I told the guys before we started recording, I'm not gonna go over every person in the cast because it's pretty. There was a lot of people, um, and some that really didn't have much of a career, uh, or you know, much to really talk about. So I'm gonna kind of hit the people that may have smaller roles but are better known for other movies or things that they've been in that we would recognize them from. So. Uh, next in line is Stephen Collins as Warren Cox, Angela's fiance. Uh, he is probably best known for playing Pastor Eric Camden on the WB or CW television series Seventh Heaven from 1996 to 2007. Afterwards, he played the roles of Dayton King on the ABC television series No Ordinary Family and Gene Porter in NBC television series Revolution. Before Seventh Heaven, Collins was known for his role as Commander William Decker in the 1977 film Star Trek The Motion Picture and in the 1982 ABC television series Tales of the Golden Monkey, which was a bad ripoff of Indiana Jones, if you remember. Hmm. You guys are probably too young to know that TV show existed. I knew it existed, and I was trying to find it a while ago for something yeah, else, but right. it, it's really not... It wasn't findable then, who knows? With, <laughs> with streaming... It's always, right. you know, things are always getting picked up and dropped, so. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've, yeah. It, go ahead. I never heard of that show. Yeah. Now, Colonel, you know, the Colonel. Cap Commander Decker, of course, I know. Mm-hmm. From Star Trek. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're I a big Star Trek. You're a big Trek fan, yeah. And you, I knew you'd, I, I knew you'd, you'd know that reference for sure. Yeah. So he, he dem- dematerialized in the Beecher and then appeared in this movie <laughs> a, a few years later. There you go. Before right. heading to be a pastor in Seventh Heaven. Right. And we won't talk about his personal life after that. You can Google it. I don't want to talk about it. All right, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> then we've got Jerry Orbach as Hackensack Bulls mm-hmm. manager Charlie Pegler. Orbach's professional career began on the New York stage, both on and off Broadway. Uh, he created roles such as El Gallo in the original off-Broadway run of The Fantastics in 1960 and became the first performer to sing the show's standard Try to Remember. He was also Billy Flynn in the original Chicago from 1975 to 77 and Julian Marsh in 42nd Street from 1980 to 1985. He was nominated for multiple Tony Awards and won for his performance as Chuck Baxter in Promises, Promises. Later in his career, he played supporting roles in films such as Prince of the City in 81, his most famous role, Dirty Dancing in 87, Crimes and Misdemeanors in 89, as a voice actor in Disney's Beauty and the Beast in 1991. He also made frequent guest appearances on television, including a recurring role on Murder, She Wrote as private detective Harry McGraw between 85 and 91. 
He was also the voice of Zachary Fox in The Adventures of the Galaxy Rangers in 1986, but he gained worldwide fame for starring as NYPD detective Lenny Briscoe on the original Law & Order series from 1992 to 2004. Chum, chum. Dun, dun. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, yeah. But yeah, good old Joy Orbach. As soon as he popped up, I was like, that's the dad from Dirty Dancing. <laughs> uh. He's the one trying to put baby in a corner. Right, exactly. Exactly. But I did. I was a big fan of Law and Order too, so of course I I knew him from that show as well. I say I never really watched uh, Law and Order, but I immediately knew, hey, that's the guy from Law and Order. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've probably seen enough Same. commercials commercials for it, right? Uh, my parents and my in laws seem to watch that show a lot, so I'm sure I've seen episodes. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, you know. it had been on for a while. It was ninety two to two thousand four. It was probably like. That would have been like 96, 97. Like when I went, when my parents were living in, when Nicholas and I knew each other, it was a freshman in college. My parents were actually living in Alabama uh, at that point. And so one summer when I was out there with them, I think they were playing reruns on A&E back when they first, you know, would just play nonstop reruns of Law and Order. And I think one night, like that's all that was on TV that I was like, I'll watch a few minutes of this. And I was like, oh, this is actually really good. And I just got watched like five episodes back to back and stayed up one night and so i was like oh, this is a pretty good show and i would try to catch it when it was on at that point but uh it was short-lived i didn't i didn't probably like that summer that was like the series that i binge watched but you know the bad thing about binge watching shows like that is you 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 discover the formula very quickly and you know exactly like by the third episode okay now this is gonna happen okay it was the second guy they interviewed you know this the real yeah. the real person you know so all those whodunit shows the the formula uh presents itself pretty quickly so anyway i digress was he also was he also uh the book detective the library detective on seinfeld bookman or was that was that somebody Ooh, else i would i don't know i haven't uh, watched i haven't watched enough seinfeld episodes recently to remember because i remember there was the library cop who came after i can't remember if it was jerry or kramer for overdue fines i want to say it was <laughs> it might have been or, might have uh but it was it was just one of those things that it, if it wasn't orbach it was one of the people one of the other old guys from law and order or one of those law and order <laughs> one of those shows. shows yeah yeah i say i wouldn't doubt it because that's kind of like the heyday of the you know, early 90s was kind of the heyday of seinfeld or you know middle to late 90s um and same time for law and order so i could being on the same network i could see them kind of popping in for a cameo or something yeah that's kind of what i was thinking so yeah I, I, I'm I'm very surprised he was the voice of Lumiere. I didn't really. Yeah. It, it took me years to realize that the same guy who was on Law and Order and mm-hmm. the dad and Third Dancer was the voice of Lumiere. Yeah, I I I remember realizing that. I think when he passed away, like a couple of years ago, like it's been a little longer than a few years ago. That I remember that being like something they talked about uh, when they announced his his death. I was like, I had no idea he was that he did voice acting work like that, and he was in that movie. So, all right, moving on, we got Pat Hingle as Edward Roundfield, who was kind of like the executor of the will, I guess. Hingle was an American actor who appeared in stage productions and in hundreds of television shows and feature films. His first film was On the Waterfront in 1954. He often played tough authority figures. Hingle was a close friend of Clint Eastwood and appeared in the Eastwood films Hang 'Em High, The Gauntlet, and Sudden Impact. But of course, he's best known as playing Jim Gordon in the Batman film franchise from 1989 to 1997. As soon as I saw him, I was like, hey, 
Commissioner Gordon. That's, that's Gordon. <laughs> right, right. And so lots of, uh, there's going to be a few more like that. We'll be like, hey, that's such and such when they pop up on, on the screen. So uh, next in line, we've got Hume Cronin as Uncle Rupert Horn. Uh, Crone acting career mostly included supporting roles, but he found himself in the spotlight for the role of Joe Finley in the science fiction film Cocoon, which is another great 80s movie that we haven't covered yet. It became a surprise box office hit, and Cronin was nominated for the Saturn Award for Best Actor. Unfortunately, the award was won by a much younger actor that year, Michael J. Fox. He Aww. returned, yeah, he returned to the role in the sequel Cocoon the Return in 88. While less successful than his predecessor, Cronin's role was well-received. He was again nominated for the Saturn Award for Best Actor, but again lost to a younger actor. That actor was Tom Hanks. Michael J. Fox. Oh. (laughs) Tom Hanks. So he lost to Michael J. Fox and Tom Hanks. Uh, But yeah, Hume Cronin. I mean, when I saw him, I knew he was in the movie Cocoon. That's probably the only other thing that I really knew him from. And I think even when this came out or when I, by the time I saw this, I had seen Cocoon. So I, I caught the, uh, the correlation there. I remember him from batteries, not included. Yeah. I remember him that and, movie too. Jessica Tandy. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Which they played husband and wife on several different movies. Yeah. Cause they like, were husband and wife. And, and, yeah. They were real life. In real life. life. Yeah. yeah. This is a name that I did not recognize, but when I saw the things that he had been a part of, I had to mention him, but grand L Bush as Rudy, the security guard who I knew that when I saw him, I was like, this guy looks so familiar. He's one of those, as Nicholas says, say, uh, that guy. Hey, there's that guy. Um, so in 1977, he landed a recurring role on the CBS sitcom Good Times. He later acted in other television series and miniseries, including Roots, before joining the cast of the rock musical Hair in 79, in which he performed a solo. He also performed in other musical dramas, including the TV series Fame and the feature film Streets of Fire. He appeared in other blockbusters like Lethal Weapon, Hollywood Shuffle, Die Hard, and Colors. He was cast in the 1989 James Bond feature film License to Kill, and he portrayed a lieutenant in the horror film The Exorcist 3 and also had a small role in Demolition Man. Yeah, I saw that name and I had to look him up too because I was like, that's a that's a name right there. Yeah, Grand <laughs> L. Bush. Yeah. What does the L stand for? That's what I want to know. I didn't look that up. But I... <laughs> he was the security guard. Yep i I thought he was the ba- I thought he I thought he was the baseball player that he struck out in the first. Oh, you know what? Oh, yeah. I think you're right. I think I got him mixed up. Oh, Rudy. Yeah, that's yeah, right, Rudy. Rudy. That was Rudy. Yeah, yeah I, you're right. I mislabeled that. Thank you. Because uh, as soon as I saw him, I was like, "Hey, it's Agent Johnson from Die Hard." And yeah. but he's only in that opening scene, so I forgot about him at the by the time we got to the end, I was doing my research. So yep, you're absolutely right. I stand corrected. Mm-hmm. So but the guy who played the security guard was in a bunch of stuff too. That's not the same guy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I've embarrassed myself for moving on. All right. Next we have, and this is a short one, Rosetta Lenore as mm-hmm. the judge. And who do we know her from? She's Carl Winslow's mother. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. That, that's the only reason I wrote her down. Yeah, she had regular roles on Give Me a Break. She played Nell Carter's mom on Give Me a Break. She was also on the TV show Amen with uh, Sherman Hemsley. Uh, but she's best known as Estelle Mother Winslow on Family Matters. So when I saw the judge, I was like, hey, I know her. 
Uh, I had to look it up because I saw her. I was like, I know her. Where do I know? Her? Right. And then I'm going through the MDB going, I watched it. I watched it. I went, oh, nope. That's where I know her. From. <laughs> yeah. Yep. 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 Good old TGIF Fridays on ABC. Oh, oh yeah. All right. I only got a few more. We'll we'll hit these pretty quick. So then this is another name that I, did, I didn't recognize, but their, their filmography had, I had to mention them. Peter Jason as TV reporter Chuck Fleming, which is that's the best TV reporter name. This is Chuck Fleming reporting for TV One. Uh, Jason has appeared in many films for director Walter Hill. is especially memorable as the racist redneck bartender in 48 Hours. He also appeared in many films for director John Carpenter. He was the jolly Dr. Paul Leahy in Prince of Darkness in 87 and the underground guerrilla army leader Gilbert in They Live in 1988. Other notable roles include a sinister government agent in Dreamscape in 84, Major G.F. Devon in Clint Eastwood's Heartbreak Ridge in 86, Detective Fetter Chuck in Alien Nation in 88, a newspaper reporter in Seed Biscuit in 2003, and also he was the U.S. president in Alien Apocalypse in 2005, which sounds like something that came on the sci-fi channel that I've never seen. I kept thinking that he looked familiar. And so seeing he'd been in all those movies, once again, another one of those that guys that I was like, I know that face. Have you seen Alien Apocalypse? Nicholas? Probably. <laughs> that seemed that seems like a kind of movie I would watch, or or a movie that that the guys on the pop culture roulette have discussed at some point in one of their brackets. Yeah, I mean, there's a good chance if I haven't watched it yet, it'll probably go on a list now. But... <laughs> you said he was in Alien Nation. Yeah, that's I remember. That's a good movie too. Was it the movie or the show? The movie. The movie. Okay. Yeah, he was in the movie. Uh, yeah, with Khan. Uh, yeah, James Khan. James Conn. And Mandy Patinkin. So, uh, that's right. Yeah. Two more. Probably my favorite cameo, Rick Moranis as Morty King, <laughs> the Mimic King. Of course, Rick Moranis is known for Second City TV. He was also in Strange Brew in 83, Ghostbusters 84, Ghostbusters 2 in 89, Little Shop of Horrors 86, Spaceballs 87, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids in 89, and its two sequels, Parenthood in 89, My Blue Heaven in 1990, and The Flintstones in 1994. I'm sure he was there because of John Candy and just had to that little small bit he has in the movie. But as soon as he popped up, I was like, oh, my gosh, I forgot Rick Moranis was in this. I just wrote on my paper, criminally underused. Yes, yes. <laughs> I wish he, he was so good. Yeah. I just wish he had a different character. Like the Mimic King was so, I mean, that's such an 80s I guess maybe an eighties comic thing. It fit the scene it was in, but I like you was like, I wish he had a different role where he was more in the movie. Like I would have liked for him to have been the photographer rather than the other guy that was the photographer, which mm. I didn't mention in the cast, but yeah. And, and just to bring it back, I looked up alien apocalypse just now. Yes. I have actually seen that movie. Uh, <laughs> it's starting, it's starting Bruce Campbell. So, Oh, there you go. Uh... There you go. <laughs> oh man. Laramie would be proud. It's a big Bruce Campbell fan. All right. And then uh, the other cameo, Yakov Smirnoff as the taxi driver. And of course, you have to be a person of the 80s to know who Yakov Smirnoff was. He began his career as a stand-up comedian in the, in the Soviet Union, then immigrated to the U.S. in 1977 in order to pursue an American show business career, though he did not know any English at the time. He reached his biggest success in the mid to late eighties, appearing in several films, which included Moscow on the Hudson with Robin Williams, the money pit with Tom Hanks and heartburn with Jack Nicholson and Meryl Street. But Yakov was very upset about them being cast in this movie. He said, I was not only typecast as a Russian, but I was typecast as Yakov Smirnov. <laughs> 
He said, this is understandable. I was very happy to get the roles, but I would have been nice to be in a movie where I could play someone else. Because, you know, he uses his catchphrase, what a country, like every, they yeah. make sure he says that catchphrase in just about every movie that he's in. So, I mean, he might have been upset about it, but that never stopped him from going on Night Court every other episode. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. He was on Night Court as well. Yeah, yeah. So, but I, I didn't, I do remember Yakov Smirnoff from the 80s and popping up and, but I was a big uh, Night, Night Court fan too, so. Oh, yeah. I uh, I looked him up just recently, uh, well, in the last year or two for something I just I was remembering things from the '80s, or I was watching a bunch of old reruns of Night Court. Yeah, I was like, yeah. "What is he doing?" And apparently, he's got his own theater or has his own residency. Oh yeah, in, in Branson, Branson, Missouri. Okay. So, so if you ever if you ever want to go see Yakov live, at least as of a couple years ago, he was <laughs> he was doing Branson. So hey. not, not not Vegas or Reno, the the you know right. the third you know yeah. Hey, he's still working. He's, yeah. People are coming to see him. It's not not a bad living. I'm not yeah, gonna lie. Go. If I ever yeah. went to Branson, I might go. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's either Yakov Smirnoff or the Oak Ridge Boys. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I think uh, they have one too, a residency out there. Yeah, I know which one I'm. Oh, they did. <laughs> yeah. I remember when Branson was like it was go it was gunning to be like the next Vegas. Like it was, it it had its. It had its heyday. I don't know if it's as big now as it was back in like the late nineties when it tried. It yeah. did not succeed. It did not succeed. Yeah. <laughs> Much like Gatlinburg or Pigeon Forge, Tennessee <laughs> uh did around the same time. So but I was gonna say it's Pigeon Forge at best. Yeah, yeah. Minus the mountain. Right, right. Anybody else oh sorry, anybody else from the cast that I may have missed that you guys wanted to mention? Um I put in David White. One of the two guys that were trying to, the, one of the, I don't know what their official, the the law, the firm, the yeah, uh, the firm, because guys, yeah. uh, when I saw my immediate, it was like, that's the guy oh. from Bewitched, because even though Bewitched was made in the like sixties, yeah, fifties or sixties, yeah, yeah, looked identical, had yeah, somehow didn't age from being the old guy <laughs> on Bewitched to mm. being the old guy in uh in Larry Tate Million. Yeah, yeah, good old Larry Tate. But yeah, yeah. I was immediately. Yeah. I didn't have to look him up. I was like bewitched. Yeah, yeah. I did have him originally, and then I was like, eh, well, I'll, I'll, you know, I couldn't get, I couldn't get them all. So, but yeah, one of the Go sports ahead. announcers mm-hmm. uh, was Alan Autry. Yes, yeah, he played. He was uh, from uh, in the heat of the night. Yep, I recognize yep. him. I did recognize him as well. And the other one was. Uh, the other announcer had done some stuff too, but I couldn't, I, I didn't look him up, but he's been in some other stuff too, especially like in the, in the eighties, I think eighties and early nineties, but I didn't look his name up, but yeah, the, the baseball announcers for sure. It's funny. The guy who tried to get him to, uh, or did get him to do the, uh, iceberg. Yes. Um, I thought it was the guy, one of the guys from Saturday Night Live, um, what was his name? He was. It's the season before Robert Downey Jr. and all them. It was the that year uh, with uh, Christopher Guest and okay. And, uh, he, he did. He did. He was very funny on Saturday Night Live, but mm-hmm. it, apparently it was not him. Okay, yeah. He looked. <laughs> I was like, he did, oh. Yeah, he did look familiar, but I didn't. I I didn't see him going through the filmography or f- through the cast. His his picture didn't pop up where I was when I was going to talk about. So, but yeah, but those are. All worth mentioning for sure. So, one more. I have Go one ahead. more. Go ahead. The the uh, first journalist 
to ask him a question at the rally was the landlady yes. in um, Kingpin and Magda in There's Something About Mary. She's yes. In, she's in almost all of the uh, Fairly Brothers movies. Lynn Shane. Lynn Shane. Yeah. Lynn Shane. Yeah. I yeah. did. I, you're right. When when she when she popped up, I was like, now she's much. She looked much younger there. Much younger. Like yeah. I knew exactly who that was. You're right. I forgot to mention her as well. So, so lots of great cameos in this movie of people that uh, went on to other things or people we'd seen in other '80s movies for sure. So. And now these messages. Now playing on a cell phone near you. A show for all the manly men out there. Where guys talk about their favorite movies and what they can teach us about being a man. Featuring the coolest guests. Murder somebody is not like killing an ant. The most gratifying laughs. It's Tombstone, what can I say? (laughs) (laughs) And a fresh take on movies like you've never heard before. This will be the thing that gets written on his proverbial tombstone. We aren't here to criticize the movies you love, but to praise them for how they apply to our lives as husbands, fathers, and really all men in general. So buckle up your seatbelts, because Manly Movies is here. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast catcher. And remember, man up. What's up, dudes? I'm Jerry D. of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the 80s. Toys, movies, specials, music, books, fashion, and fads. If it was gnarly during Christmas in the 80s, he's got it covered. Wait, is there a lot of things to talk about for the 80s and Christmas? Well, you got the movie giants like Christmas Vacation, Scrooge, and A Christmas Story. There are TV specials like Muppet Family Christmas, Claymation Christmas Celebration, and a Garfield Christmas Special. Plus classics shown every year. You also jam out to Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Christmas in Hollis. But most of all, it was a time for the most bodacious, best-selling Christmas toys ever, like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers, and Cabbage Patch Kids. Yes, them too. We cover them all, plus much more, including standard segments like Hap Hap Happiest Memory, Gagging with the Spoon, The Other Half of the Battle, and Chant with the Littles. So tune in to Totally Rad Christmas everywhere you get your podcasts. Turn the clock back and dive into those warm and fuzzy memories. Later, dudes. Hey everybody, do you ever just sit around with your friends and reminisce about the days and how things used to be when you were a kid or a teenager or maybe even a young adult? The TV shows and the movies that you watched at the time and how things just aren't quite the same today? Well, let me tell you, I've got the place for you. My name is Chris Adams and I'm the host of the podcast Retro Life For You. And here at Retro Life For You, we talk about and discuss movies and TV that is retro. And we are going back from the 80s and the 90s and into the 2000s. Hey, sometimes we might even touch back to the 70s if we're feeling good. If this is for you, make sure you look for us on everywhere that you can find your podcast at. Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, Google, Stitcher, or hosted on Anchor FM. And make sure you follow us on all the major networks and leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Look forward to hearing from you. All right, well, let's talk about iconic scenes, favorite scenes. I don't know if there's really an iconic scene in this movie. It's not really that type of movie. We have an iconic scene, I guess. But what about favorite scenes? What you got, Nicholas? Um, well, I mean, for because I, I did, you know, because I did list one thing about the iconic scenes. It okay, was, go for it. And it was, for me, when I think of Brewster's Millions, one of the things, and maybe it's just for me, mm-hmm. I always think about the train traveling through the outfit. Yeah. <laughs> I did forget, however, that's like, 
three minutes into the movie. Yes, if, yes. If, I was like, yes. well, I, see, I remember that being a bigger point of the movie. Right. But then right. it happened right away, and I'm like, oh, oh, it's been a while since I've watched this movie. So, <laughs> yeah, the train in the outfield is definitely iconic. I guess it's it's big. It's a bigger deal later when they're having the game with the Yankees because he's of course he's running for or he's doing the none of the above campaign. Yeah. So it's got all the, you know, the uh, political stuff on, on the train when it comes to that time. And it also comes like before the game starts, like in the, at the beginning of the movie, like they have to pause the game while yeah, the train yeah. goes through, which I thought was, I, I did think was funny even back then. For but, my favorite scenes, mm-hmm. basically anything with John Candy, but John Candy, <laughs> when he was like, being a catcher, like standing by yeah. the plate yeah. and just running his mouth to the batters. Like yes. that is, yeah, that was that was some just, uh, you know, most of it had to have been added. Oh, of but, course. Yeah. 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 Yeah, for sure. All right. What you got, Chad? You have an iconic scene or just favorite scenes? Yeah. Uh, the iconic scene for me was the stamp purchase. <laughs> yeah. Uh, buying the most expensive stamp and then mm-hmm. mailing it to the uh, the law firm. Yes. <laughs> I was, I, I mentioned this doing this somebody is my father-in-law or something mm-hmm. and that was that was that's the city yeah remember when he bought the stamp I'm like, yeah oh yeah that was, that's yeah that's definitely brilliant. like one of the mo- one of the memorable scenes because i you know that's something like we said when i think about brewster's millions i think about the stamp like i remember that being a big part of the movie yeah. uh but it's it's funny because my a friend of mine who actually i was at his house saturday mm-hmm. before we went to a baseball game i was watching it mm-hmm. and he walks in and he's like and he's like, hey, that's, I remember the movie The Stamp, and that's what I was talking to my friend. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you know, that went against the rules. Like mailing it defaced it, and he said you cannot destroy mm-hmm. whatever you, you purchase or whatever it is. And yeah, there's there's two sides of that argument because I did see that yeah. in research. Because there's one like because it was used for its intended purpose, then it wasn't destroyed. It wasn't being destroyed. Like nobody could right. use it again. But it was a stamp, and so by him using it for the purpose it was supposed to be used for, mm-hmm. then technically it's not you're not destroying it because you used it for its purpose. So, uh, yeah, same. I saw that. I that saw that sense. argument, but then I was like, man, there's a lot of things that you could turn into art or some sort of historical piece, mm-hmm. and and then like you can't use that anymore because you would destroy it. You know? Right. So I I see both sides of that argument. I did. I did make notes on that to have that discussion of like, yeah. well, you know, what, what did, cause I, I see both sides of the argument. Yeah. Know. But also like, but it's such a cool part of the movie. It's like, whether, whether it's it, who cares? You know what I'm saying? It's like, it doesn't matter <laughs> if it, if it, if it yeah. disqualified him or not, it, it was still a great thing to do. Cause you take that same thought. It's like, well, he could have just went and bought a bunch of rare coins and then went to the subway and put the coins in the, you know, or went to an arcade and played arcade games with, you know, $50 quarters or whatever, you know what I'm saying? So it still spins the same. So, but it was also an ingenious way for him to kind of, you know, for him to send it to them at the law firm was kind of like a, you know, in your face kind of a moment too. So it, you know, for storytelling, it was perfect. Whether it could right. actually be legally, if it legally kicked him out of, you know, disqualified him. eh, it's, it's too great of an area for us to really get into, I guess. But the stamp is definitely iconic. Uh, favorite scene for you, Chad, or is that it? I don't know if it's a favorite scene, but I, I do have I do have a question. Sure. Um, at the at the end, when he walks when he walks into that 
the final room before he mm-hmm. leaves his hotel. He sees the 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 room that the girls. He he asked for a room that he could die in. Right, right. Well, when he walks in, and I'm not, I didn't see this before. I looked around. I looked at the floor. Is the floor from Star Wars? Like, oh, it it looked it looked like the at the end of Star Wars when, you know the the Death Star is coming toward, you know Yevon Four and and it you know it appears I, in the thing. I missed that if it was. Yeah, I, I giant, did too. You, you didn't see that? Okay. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Have to go back and look at that, but yeah, I don't know. I did think that when he walked in, I thought he was walking into an office. Because they had like a table, yeah. and like it was all like a work area. Like I didn't think about that being his apartment that he was staying in. But that is, I I, I remember that that scene specifically. I remember as a kid because like when she was like, "Good, I'm so glad you like it," and then she's like, "Okay, boys, come and tear it all down." It's like yeah. she just spent all this time redecorating this room that he rented, so it couldn't stay that way. So it had all be taken down after he saw mm-hmm. it, right when she finished. So, but what they didn't really mention was like what I thought was cool is that even though they may think he used them to spend the money, but in doing that project, like the fiance made a comment like, Oh, we've got architect digest is going to, it's been taking pictures looking at our work. So that actually probably got her more business even after that. Like, so he actually helped them in that process, which I thought was a cool, not really fully thought out or fully explained, but I kind of, I picked up on that. This, I was like, you know what? That was probably a good thing for them, uh, for the company that that they were probably able to get more business because of that. So, which I kind of wish the movie would have done more like if he could have the people that he hired and that what what they went on to do other things like if it bettered their lives that he had hired them for these this, you know, 30 days or whatever. But, you know, once again, I'm digging too deep in a movie that didn't mean didn't really want to be deep, but just, you know, thinking about it. The movie just ended. Yeah, it like, did. <laughs> right after he gets the 300 million, yeah. it just ends. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, well, what happened to yeah. live happily ever after? I guess since, so. Since we're in this mode already, yeah. One of the one of the things I was thinking of it is it would have been nice to have maybe an extra ten minutes or so at the beginning of the movie mm-hmm. setting because Uncle whatever his name is, like, yeah, like reams him out and says you've been wasteful, <laughs> you've been doing this, you've been doing yeah. that, yeah. But like all we know about Brewster at this point is that like he's a minor league relief pitcher mm-hmm. in a you know in middle of nowhere New Jersey, and like he got you know he, he he hits mm-hmm. on he hits on girls at the bar and gets in bar fights. But right. like you know we don't know like we don't have any established of like does, is he irresponsible with money? Is right. He, right. Is he you know like. We just, you know, so like his uncle's like, oh, you've done this and you've done that. And you're mm-hmm. like, but but we don't know that. Yeah. So it would have been nice to give us a few minutes of like him being frivolous or a little mm-hmm. bit like the reason why he is pitching in the minor leagues in Hackensack instead of in one mm-hmm. of the bigger minor league cities or still in the majors is, you know, because he is frivolous or, mm-hmm. you know. You know, and so I don't, I don't really think it's, I mean, it doesn't take away from my enjoyment of the movie, but it's just like, man, and maybe if we, you know, if they were to remake it, like, Shh, don't say that word. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'd be upset about them. Remaking. No, no. I think, I think that, you know, it's been remade so many times now, like it's not, you know, it's not really sacrilege at this point, but, but I agree with you. Like, I think it is kind of alluded to like when they're in jail, it's like we can't afford our own bail and the team is, you know, they're getting, he's getting fired from the team. But I agree with you. I think to see 
a little bit more of him before that game would have given us a little bit more backstory and context of why uh, Uncle Rupert uh, was so hard on him about how he treated money and treated his life. So, and there was a weird part of me too that at the beginning, when when that scene, when they were showing that scene of him watching the the movie, and I was like, is there some other version of this where Uncle Rupert's not dead and he shows up at the end, or am I have like is that like some crazy dream that I dreamed at one point where there's, or there's like there's, a, there's another movie that's similar to that, right? There's probably another movie that's similar. Yeah. Where somebody leaves an inheritance, but they're not really dead. They just want to teach the, the family member a lesson or whatever. I feel, I feel like I've seen that movie too, but yeah, but it I mean. wasn't this one. Uh, and if, if Brewster did not know this uncle, how did the uncle know all so much about Bruce? I'm assuming the photographer was like a private investigator. So even though he probably wasn't the top of the line, private investigator but (laughs) and then yeah we talk about the bar fight every 80s movie has to have has to have a bar scene with a bar fight breakout uh, which thought was funny but that is actually the same bar from uh 48 hours so walter hill had a lot of things that he uh a lot of different connections so i think i'll get i'll get into that in the trivia go ahead the the blonde in the bar fight what was that accent oh i don't even remember because it was i mean it's set in new jersey right Whatever accent that was was not New Jersey. <laughs> like it was, I was like, "What is what is happening here? What is it? Where is this?" Because I couldn't place it, but it was definitely not a New Jersey accent. Yeah, I missed that. I don't remember. It was almost trying to be southern, didn't she? Like call him sugar or something? Or I, it was almost southern, but southern, have, well, I mean, yeah. you guys, you know, I, you guys are still down in <laughs> well, Georgia. I lived in Georgia for a long time, so it was, it wasn't. It was a very bizarre accent, whatever it was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll do some investigation and find out. Yeah, I don't really have an iconic scene. I have some favorite favorite scenes, but I'm like you at the John Candy as the catcher at the game is classic. Like, you know, him heckling the batters. I love that. Um uh I, the 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 one of the funniest John Candy scenes to me, which I know was probably not in the script, was probably just done at the moment, was when when they actually go to the office where before he gets, before he uh, sees the film with uncle Rupert and he sits him, you know, him and the uh, photographer always yeah. going back and forth with each other, but they sit in the waiting room and they both grab the magazine and, and John Kenny like pulls the magazine. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm going to look at it. He looks at it. He doesn't want to read it. He throws it on the table in front of him instead of giving <laughs> it to the photographer, which is really yeah. short. But I was like, that was such a cool, like a funny moment. Uh, so I, I, that, that stood out to me watching it this time. It was one of my favorite. Uh, little bits that he did. I will say that I did love, and even though I was not a catcher, I would love to have the gold catcher's mitt or the catcher's mask uh, necklace that John Candy wears uh, once yeah. he gets some money. I thought that I always thought that was cool that he wore that good old '80s fashion though. All the suits and stuff oh, that that uh, yeah. Richard Pryor wore, which I thought was classic. Well, the scene where where John Candy comes out of the elevator with the the thing and he does the thing. I've seen that, you know, they, when they had the tributes for him, mm-hmm. they always show that. That's yeah. Like, I've seen that so many sharp, times. Sharp dressed. He's all dressed up. Yeah. He's mm-hmm. like, yeah. And does his like eyebrows or mm-hmm. hair back. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Yeah. It's fun. It's a fun movie. I do like that it does have kind of the, you know, you got to have the bad guy. You got to have the conflict. So to have the law firm, like not wanting him to succeed. And of course them bribing the fiance to look, you know, to look, uh, to be the eyes and ears. And then, um, him 
you know, withholding or getting a refund for the $20,000 to then show, make sure he doesn't, he loses and how that all played out. Because even going back and watching it again, I kept thinking that he was going to tell Angela before, but I was like, no, he can't do that because then he'll be disqualified. I was like, well, maybe he tells her and, but then how it, how it plays out that she finds out from the fiance. So it doesn't break the rules. I just think it was like really smart. I mean, I don't, you know, I haven't read the book. So I know the thing about how the book does it, but I thought that was a good way for, you know, him to stay, he was, he did follow the rules, even when it was like driving him crazy of like, you know, I wish, you know, I'm not this guy that you think I am. This is, you know, you're going to understand after tomorrow. One thing I don't understand is why there's like a 12 hour span or like a half a day. Once he's like loses everything, like, you know, he gets, they take everything out of the apartment. They put his clothes back on, but he's just kind of out and about like that afternoon. And then he shows up at midnight. Like, did you, did you really go to zero? Like six hours? Yeah. Like six hours of time. You know, when he woke up, he's like three o'clock, uh, Mr. Brewster, it's time for you to check out. So from three to midnight, he's just wandering the streets of New York or New Jersey until he didn't have money for a cab. Right. right. <laughs> I, just, I thought that was an interesting that was that was one part I was like, I don't really understand why yeah. there's that that break there. But then for it to come down the last, you know, few seconds of him uh, hiring Angela to be his lawyer to uh, and her giving the receipt for him to win the money, which was great. Uh, one other cameo that I did forget. The guy that rear ends him when they're about to take a drive with Angela to go to the, the the dinner. Did anybody recognize the guy that that he paid the money to that had the little spot on his over his eye? He looked was familiar, it, but I I couldn't place it. Was that the dad from Mork and Mindy? He was from Mork and Mindy. Yep. Yeah. That okay. was that was Mindy's oh. father from Mork and Mindy. Mindy's I don't father, remember. Yeah. I don't remember his name, but when I when he popped, I was like, oh my gosh, the guy from Mork and Mindy. But anyway. Another well, cameo the, that I remembered. The guy from the guy that gave uh, the whatever his name was the refund. The, yes. Um, oh yeah, guy, yeah, that guy. He's that in a guy, bunch of stuff. In yeah. the '80s, was in everything. He yeah. was on like every sitcom, every <laughs> movie. Like I mean, he was just in every. But I, I think he did commercial. I think he did commercials too, didn't he? Oh yeah, I mean, he just. I mean, he must have been like one of the most consistent working actors in the eighties, but <laughs> I don't know if he ever had a starring role in anything. No, no. He was always like a side character. He was always like a workman. Like he was always some guy that was, he was either the plumber or he was the construction guy. He was working on something, repairing something. Was he the same guy from Ferris Bueller when principal Rooney goes in the arcade and thinks he caught Ferris. And then he's asking, he's watching the baseball game. He's like, who's winning? He said, what's the score? zero to zero he's like who's winning the bears because it's like <laughs> he wasn't paying attention to the, <laughs> maybe it yeah. might have been i don't know that's stuck in my head maybe because they were both maybe because he's watching a baseball game in that in this movie too maybe think about it all right we'll hit a little bit of uh trivia some other scenes maybe it'll uh make us think about other parts of the movie as well uh so the movie involves a team named the hackensack bulls but no part of the movie was actually filmed anywhere in the state of new jersey much less hackensack in a few scenes, a train passes through the outfield of the stadium where the Bulls play. In the 30s and 40s, that was a common occurrence at ballparks used by teams in the Texas leagues. So I mentioned it earlier. According to Paul Mooney's Black is the New White book, John Candy was actually jealous of Pryor and Eddie Murphy's instant friendship on the set of Brewster's Millions. Candy had brought Murphy on set as a guest because they knew each other. Candy confessed to Mooney that he thought Pryor hated him. Mooney told him otherwise, but wrote that the truth was Richard could not stand John Candy. 
So that mm-hmm. once again made me kind of sad that they didn't like uh, each other. But yeah, it's probably why they didn't do any of the other movies after that either. So sometimes people just don't get along. It happens, yeah, but... yeah, it does. I mean, you know, but you don't. It doesn't show in the work. That's what's so good about it. It's like you know, in in the film, they look like they really enjoy being each other and they're professionals and what they can do. So uh, that, uh, that's what made them some of the better ones at their game. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I kind of mentioned this earlier too. The movie has several connections with Walter Hill's earlier film, Forty Eight Hours. The bar in which Montgomery and Spike start a brawl is called Torchies, the same name of the bar Eddie Murphy shook down in 48 Hours. The bar also appears in the film When a Stranger Calls from 1979. The Torchies waitress in the film who phones in the brawl, which, of course, Nicholas mentioned about the accent, was played by Margot Rose, who also appeared in 48 Hours as the girlfriend of the character who, we're told, used to tend bar at Torchies. The car driven by Brewster's personal photographer is a sky blue Cadillac convertible, the same type of car driven by Nick Nolte in 48 Hours. And if you didn't know, 48 Hours was originally intended to co-star Richard Pryor when it was in development at Columbia Pictures during the late 70s and early 80s. So a lot of connections there. Maybe I should break down and actually watch 48 Hours. Yeah, I watched it. I think I had seen the TV version of it as a teenager, but I did not watch like the actual theatrical cut until probably like four or five years ago, maybe. And there's people that really, really love it. It's okay. Like Eddie Murphy is good in it, but I just, I, I didn't like Nick Nolte at all. Like he's so crass and rude. It just, it, it, it rubbed me the wrong way. So I don't, I don't have the same love for it that other people did. Um, But probably saw it when it first came out and it kind of, it was a little bit more acceptable his behavior in 1982 than it was when I watched it in 2020 or 2019. So, all right. Any other scenes or trivia we want to mention? There was one weird thing. I caught it in the first, uh, first watching. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, what? And then, so I paid attention the second time. There was a really weird line that made no sense to me. I'm hoping you both heard it. Okay. The, the two bad lawyers are talking to each other about Mm -hmm. the political campaign. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, oh, he took ads on all the major networks. Right. And they're like, all the major networks? Yeah. He took ads out in all 52 states just in case there are <laughs> in case yeah. there are New Yorkers out of town. And I'm like, right. wait, what? Yeah. Fif- Hold on. Yeah. I did see that. We're like, why did he say 52 states? Because there are there's never been 52 states. Like, what no, in the world? Never. And, yeah. and I, as, so I thought I heard it the first time. Mm-hmm. So I I was looking for it the second time. I was like, Maybe I heard it wrong. And then the second <laughs> time I was like, no, no, he, he said it. I was, and they, there's no reference to it ever again. So no. I don't know what the joke was, but yeah, it was really threw me off. Didn't know what to think about that. Maybe the guy was like, I'm not doing another take. I don't yeah. care what I said. Yeah. That's the only thing I can think of. Just I edit, said 52. Edit, yeah. An editing error where they just, that was, or they just couldn't do a, a retake of that or even ADR to like fix it in editing. They just, ah, we'll, we'll leave it in. Maybe Walter Hill thought it was funny and so left it in. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a joke. We'll leave it in yeah. a joke. <laughs> yeah. People will love it. I noticed uh, it's mainly just because I live in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. So, and, and so you guys probably didn't hear it. But when they are at the baseball game playing the Yankees, the band starts playing Roll Out the Barrel. Okay. Which in Milwaukee, that's the seventh inning stretch song. They oh, okay. Play roll, they, play, take, they play Take Me Out to the Ball Game and then follow it up by Roll Out the Barrel with all the lyrics. 
it's a Milwaukee tradition. So when I hear, hmm. like now when I hear that song, because I've lived here now, oh, I don't know. I've been, well, I've been with my wife now 14 years, so 15, 16 years now that I've lived in the Milwaukee area. Mm-hmm. So I've been to a lot of Brewer games. So like prior to moving here, I probably would have never given that song a second shot. But then, mm-hmm. now I hear it, I'm like, ah, the Brewers. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. I, I can't think of the tune in my head now. So when I had to look that up, I didn't know that. That's awesome. O- only because I go to a lot of Brewer games. Yeah. That I that I know that song. Yeah. But that's why you listen to the '80s flashback podcast because if you don't know, live you don't live in Milwaukee, you wouldn't have known that like me. So it's you know another reason okay. to be a faithful listener. I appreciate that. Thank you for the insight, Nicholas. As always, <laughs> the mid the Midwest insight that we need. Uh, there you go. That's why you bring me Middle America, America. <laughs> I thought it was interesting the uniforms that they wore. Yeah, were were done by Nike. Yeah, the yeah. little little Nike symbol on the side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty. I like their uniforms. I thought it was interesting. They were the Hackensack Bulls, and of course, you know, you got the Durham Bulls from Bull Durham. So yeah. it's like Bulls, obviously, are very famous, a favorite minor league baseball team. Though the the Durham Bulls is a real minor league team, the Hackensack Bulls is not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about box office and critical reception. No, you're good. Uh, box office and critical reception. So Brewster's Millions opened in American theaters on Wednesday, May 22nd, 1985, just before the Memorial Day weekend. It actually debuted at number three behind two other new releases. James Bond's A View to a Kill at number two. And you know it's not going to take down. Rambo First Blood Part Two was the number one movie the same weekend. So. Couldn't beat Rambo at the theater. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it at 35% on the tomato meter with a 56% audience score on IMDb, 6.5 out of 10 with viewers, and a 37 on Metacritic. So tomato meter and Metacritic are pretty close together. IMDb viewers a little bit higher than Rotten Tomato. What do you guys think? 6.5? Is that accurate? Too low? I think that's accurate. I think IMDb once again mm-hmm. is the better, the better barometer of what yeah. what the movie is. Yeah, yeah. Like I mean, it's having re- having not watched it in a long time, and then you know rewatching it. Like it's maybe not as good as I remembered it. Yeah, but it's still fun. It's still oh, a yeah, good yeah. movie. Like it's yeah. still a good watch. It's not not like some movies where you don't watch them for thirty years and then you go back and watch it again and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, whoa, what was I thinking? Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> This is, you know, like I, I definitely wouldn't mind putting this back in in the rotation. Or if I was at Walmart and I saw it in like the, you know, the three dollar bin, I'd be mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, I'll grab that. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. What about you, Chad? I think it's pretty, pretty fair. And I, I enjoyed it. Uh, six point five. I may bump it up like like a six point eight, maybe a little closer to seven. Uh, but I think it's just the nostalgia of it. But like you said, I think like you said, Nicholas, it's not a perfect movie. I mean, it's not. It wasn't as it's not as great as I remembered it, but it's still fun. Like there, I don't, you know, seeing it, watching it a little as older, it does, it does lose some of its, some of its charms, I guess. But I will, what it does have going for it though, aside from like the eighties fashion, like we kind of talked about, the story still works. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, $30 million is still a lot of, even now is a lot of money to have to spend, you know, in 30 days. I did wonder if they were to remake it. And, right. You know, I know I've brought this up. What would? What do you think they'd bump it up to? Because I mean, thirty <laughs> is still a lot of money. Right. I I don't know in today's day and age, they bump it to sixty. Yeah. 
Because, I mean, if you bumped it to 100, that is pushing it. Yeah, know? yeah. Uh, that's a good question. I I kind of had that same thought too. I was like, well, would they Maybe, do? You know, 50, would they do? 60, would they do? Yeah. Would they do three hundred million? He had to spend, which is what he would have got. Which is what the end would have been in this one, and then make it a billion. Would they go for a billion? Would then would it be Brewster's billions? I don't know. It, it is kind of a. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. That's it's a good good question. Thinking about that too. Brewster's billions for the remake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, supposedly. Uh, uh, Robert Townsend was going to remake this like in the back in like the early 2000s. It was rumored he was going to remake it, but I haven't seen anything else about it since then. The story still works. There's nothing really dated about it. Like you can still buy. I love the election part of the movie, too, about, you know, how much money is wasted in political campaigns. And he that, kind of exploits that in the in the movie, which I thought was great. That that part seemed a little bit too realistic and a little bit too like <laughs> too modern like it was like oh man how we were dealing with this nonsense back in the 80s too. oh yeah like, oh yeah which is why i think like being remade now would be even more like that could almost be where he spends all his money now you know what i'm saying like you just just running running for office and then you know bowing out of the race the last minute and then the you know vote none of the above which they kind of tried to explain at the end like because you know that that's what actually won but neither candidate decided they were going to run after losing so they had to redo an election so like who was mayor because i'm assuming one of them had to be you know was acting mayor or whatever so uh anyway that was that was a cool thing did you like i know, I know we're kind of wrapping it up but i'm thinking did you like the little the text on the screen like the quotes and stuff like at different parts of the movie where like tied scenes together yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I mean, there was a lot of parts of the movie that really worked mm-hmm. um, and really kind of flowed. I mean, there are definitely a couple things I would have done, like I said, with some of the beginning stuff and then maybe had a little bit of a, a you know, a post log, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit more like, you know, maybe a, an Animal House style. And this is what happened here, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> right, I mean, right. I mean, we could sit here and we could pick this movie apart. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of logical inconsistencies, but yeah, overall, yeah. like, it's fun yeah it, you know you don't want to think too heavily about how this reporter just showed up and all of a sudden knew everything <laughs> yeah but yeah, you know yeah. i mean it worked i mean the reporter took the spot of the the viewer to be kind of like filling yeah. the information in the gaps yeah. so that yeah we don't have to you know have a three-hour movie yeah yeah a lot of exposition he kind of takes care of but yeah, but like Chad said, it is one of those 80s movies that just kind of ends. Like you you expect a little bit more mm-hmm. at the ending, but it's like he won the thir- 300 million, him and Angela walk out and that's it. You know, it's just that's that's the whole, you know, that's the end of the movie. So, but yeah, a lot of fun. All right. Well, I think we've covered it. Anything else we need to discuss or think we've covered it all? No, we're in the business of being in a business of being in a business, <laughs> making a business. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, that was a good line. Oh, man. All right. Well, thanks, Nicholas. Thank you, Chad, for being a part. Nicholas, what's going on with Pop Culture Roulette as we're in the month of May? Well, we're we're in the middle of our Who Played It Best series. So yep. we're talking about yep. who who played what best live action. So we've done The Others, which is everybody who's not Marvel or DC. Mm-hmm. And we've done Marvel, and I've got DC on deck. We just haven't had a chance to record it yet. That one that one's going to be huge because... Uh, we're going to talk about all 12 people who played Batman cinematically. <laughs> uh, and there are 12. Yeah. Uh, 
It's like Bond at this point. How many James they, uh, Bonds have you had? Uh, there's been more Batman than there's been James Bond. People yep. love to complain. And we're, we're going to talk about that. So we're in the middle of that series. And then I haven't quite come up with what we're going to do after that. But I'm sure we'll, it'll be something interesting. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. All right, Chad, have you, uh, have you started your stint as an audience member with Family Feud yet? Yeah, I've done five, five six, seven shows. Okay. I did uh, two last week. You may or may not see me, yeah, <laughs> but it's it's quite enjoyable. The, the best part about being an audience member for the Family Feud is the free uh, Steve Harvey stand-ups you get to. Uh, oh yeah, I'm sure. Get to uh, hear and now he does repeat jokes because they're different people, but mm-hmm. it was it's very fun. All right, so I have a question. How much? How much do they edit out? How much does he talk like? during the show, like making fun of the contestants. I'm assuming they have to edit a bunch of that stuff out or cut the stuff down. Oh yeah. There's, there's a, if you watch the show, you you see in the middle, there's a big family feud emblem on the floor. Mm -hmm. Well, if, if he walks toward the audience in front of the family feud sign, that is his not being filmed area. Okay. That's where he goes to do the bashing of the family, the dropping the (laughs) F-bombs. Oh wow! All the sort of <laughs> the and not so the not so family part of Family Feud, right? The the part of Family Feud that probably won't get on YouTube, right? Right. The other stuff's pretty crazy too, but gotcha. All right, well, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode. As always, be sure to follow, subscribe, rate, and review the show. You can still support the show uh, through buymeacoffee.com. You can buy a t-shirt or sweatshirt from the website. It is t-shirt season now. Maybe I'll throw in a tank top so you can wear to the beach and show off your guns um, or the fat that you've accumulated over the last 20 years like I have. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) if you enjoyed the episode, share with someone who loves 80s flicks and make sure you follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Once again, thank you, Nicholas. Thank you, Chad. Always a pleasure to have you guys on the show. And uh, we got more fun stuff coming up, so stay tuned. This is Tim Williams for the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Good night, good people. still here? It's over. Go home. Go.